Hey, thank you so much for joining with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. On the eve of our first first Sunday where we will be offering a worship gathering in person, Sunday, February 7th, 10:15 a.m., uh, we still want to encourage and challenge each and every one of you to find or form a community group. Uh, these community groups have proven to be incredibly fruitful, yielding a vibrant community, personal transformation. We've heard story after story, testimony after testimony of the health of people allowing themselves to be known, getting to know one another, and in turn, knowing God even further than they ever have before. I will admit that community groups, this innovation to scriptural roots is different. Community groups are a different form of worship than we perhaps have ever entered into. But I would suggest that as we invest differently, we might also then receive different. And that's not altogether a bad thing. Amen. Uh, so we want to just continue and encourage everyone, find or form a community group. If you need any help in doing so, please email us at info at lifechurchvirginia.com. We'll do everything that we can to get you planted in a community group. All right. Uh, this week, uh, this message that uh, we're going to enter into together was initially planned for January 24th, but we had to shuffle some things around with our conversation that we entered into uh, on all the things. You know, we've prayerfully designed the last Sunday of every month uh, to really have little to no content from Life Church. We want to challenge and encourage all of us to read the scriptures for ourselves, or more pointedly, allow the space, really give space to the word that it might read ourselves, that it might read us, and then engage one another in conversation and prayerful interactions in community groups, thereby growing emphatically in all of our abilities to hear the voice of God ourselves. But this passage this morning, Luke chapter 13, uh, is too intriguing for me to pass up. So we're gonna enter into our conversation today, uh, continuing our series, Stories. And the title of our conversation is A Story About Manure. A Story About Manure. And I know that you're already realizing, oh, this is why Christoph couldn't pass this up. Luke chapter 13, verses six through nine. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please speak to me and through me. Listen through each of us that we may hear your word and respond according to your word. Mold us, shape us, make us more into your image, all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a good one. I mean, who doesn't like a good manure story, right? Finding it, stepping in it, uh, putting it in a bag, setting it on fire, you know, if that's your kind of thing, whatever that is. Um, I personally have a bunch of manure stories. Having uh, grown up here in Williamsburg, I was in the Fife and Drum Corps uh, down in Colonial Williamsburg. And of course, uh, horse manure litters the streets. It's so funny when I was in middle school and high school and even up till today as I go down and walk around, I don't necessarily go all the way around the, the horse manure. Um, I usually kind of get as close to as I can just to freak out my kids. But I was in middle school and high school and, and working down in Colonial Williamsburg, uh, we made it a point 
to do things with the manure that we normally wouldn't do. We would kick it. Uh, there was one time in particular, if you get manure just right, it's hard and crusty on the outside, but it's still soft in the middle. And, and we would get into these manure fights, all of us, fifers and drummers, and we'd pick up, you'd get a good one. You could huck that thing like 10, 15 feet. I'll never forget Anthony Jackson running a, a route almost, and he was running away from me. I picked up a piece of manure, perfect, crispy on the outside, still soft and gooey on the inside. And I tagged him in the back. All of the uh, tourists around it, they loved it. They were taking pictures. It was a great moment. One of my happiest moments in my life. (laughs) But Jesus' manure story is a little bit different by that. And Jesus' manure story is preceded by a lot. Again, Luke 13 verses 6 through 9 is our passage. Luke uh, chapter 12 Verses uh, 22 down through 34 is really a place where Jesus speaks to anxiety. And anxiety being a thing in all of our lives, we should pay attention to what Jesus has to say about it. But anxiety is not about, or rather dealing with anxiety, is not about not being stressed. Jesus makes the point of, hey, you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The opposite or the, the antidote for anxiety, according to the way of Jesus, is to properly prioritize your life. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, Jesus speaks of necessity of being ready, being aware of what really matters. Because being ready is not knowing necessarily what's coming, but being able to know what is important. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 49 through 53, Jesus speaks to the nature of divinity and how it's different. He talks about coming, not necessarily to give peace, but division. And again, it's speaking to the difference of the way of Jesus. In Luke 12, verses 54 through 56, he's talking about times and seasons and how we should be able to, or at least try to discern what is the time, what is the season. And again, he's speaking this, it says, also to the crowds. There are still hundreds, if not thousands of people walking with him on this journey. And verses 57 down through 59, he speaks to the benefit of settling with people who are accusing you, finding peace, if at all possible, when it pertains to your own life. And then The passage right before Jesus is telling of the parable is interesting. In my notes, in fact, Luke 13 verses 1 through 5, I have the blowing up head emoji picture because it's just, it's crazy as the disciples and those who are present are asking him the question. They're bringing up a moment that had just happened in recent history where some people were killed because a building fell over and they're asking did this happen because blood was mingled in the sacrifice and was this their punishment for it and Jesus is like no 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 they weren't being punished because that happened it's this weird little like sowing and reaping that the disciples are trying to understand this bad thing happened to them so obviously they did something bad to deserve it The point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of activity here as Jesus is telling this story. There are a lot of feelings exhibited. And again, this weird sowing and reaping implication of the disciples too. Let me just say this. The disciples were not defined by their getting it. Not one single bit. The disciples in the scriptures are defined by their continued following. Their commitment to ask, learn, grow, try new things, change, imagine differently. 
The original language for that word that we often use as disciples is metetes, which means student or learner. It's not the disciples have achieved a place of knowledge or understanding. In fact, they are far from it. They were on the JV team, the B team. They weren't normally following rabbis. Remember, they were fishermen and tax collectors. Every Jewish boy would have been raised to want to be a rabbi, but those who couldn't make the cut, who couldn't learn the Torah, who couldn't whatever, fill in the blank, became fishermen, tax collectors, or some other occupation. So all of these people that Jesus calls to himself to be his disciples weren't good enough like the Pharisees or like the Sadducees. But in Jesus' invitation, he situates them not as people who got it, but people who would commit to follow him, to continue to learn, to continue to change. The metetes, the disciples of scripture were those who decided I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow, I'm going to change. We contemporary followers of Jesus, we often rate ourselves and others, which as an aside, will always get us into trouble. And I don't just mean trouble like slap on the wrist, I mean trouble like deconstruct us be unhealthy for our soul structure. The Bible talks about how dangerous it is when we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. But we contemporary followers of Jesus often rate ourselves and rate others too often in the unhealthy and unscriptural way of what has been gotten. How much of the Bible do I know? Where are the books of the Bible? How much can I quote? Rather than the Jesus way of we're going somewhere. We are leaving where we are and we're heading to some yet unknown, imaginative, creative, divine place in our minds, in who we are. This story today, the the story about manure, I think shakes us back to that, that vibrant way of Jesus. Eugene Peterson in his book that we've been looking at from time to time, Tell It Slant, says this. And so we are encouraged as we follow Jesus, to develop a language of participation, of following, of listening with the intent of obeying, of being on guard against depersonalizing God talk. Depersonalizing God talk would be things of uh, the spiritual realm, the, the emotional mysticism of some religious conversation that honestly doesn't invade our day-to-day existence, our interactions with people, with neighbors, with spouses, with children. The simple fact of the matter is, when you speak about depersonalizing God talk, we crave commands. We prefer active ones. Honestly, we want hoops to jump through. But God introduces and doubles down on not doing, oftentimes as being life-giving. Too often in our current culture, slowness is either ignored or it's maligned. Why aren't they doing more? Why haven't they done something? It is indeed something we come back to here at Life Church a lot, the Sabbath. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that has remember attached to it. Remember the Sabbath. I would suggest, as I have previously, it's not because it's the one that's a little this or one that's a little that. I would suggest God's verbiage with remember the Sabbath is because we are apt to not only forget it, but act like it doesn't exist. Act like it isn't really important. 
but remember the Sabbath, the resting, the ceasing, and keep it holy, the scriptures talk about. And of course, it's not only in Exodus chapter 20. We see it all throughout the scriptures. I'm going to work through some places in Psalms that we see this. Psalm 27, verse 1. We often quote this verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And we would attach that to his activity, to those righteous actions that we're doing. But down it concludes this psalm with, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37. This would be a well-known psalm as well. It talks about fret not yourself. Trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself. 5, commit your way. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. We see this juxtaposition of activity in God's presence being met with our ceasing and our giving of space. Psalm 40, again, another famous passage that we would all be familiar with. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed are the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. And so again, we see the ceasing on our part. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 10, be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, is our fortress. We see Jesus speak to this as well, this ceasing, this stopping in Mark chapter 8, verse 33. As he's telling the disciples, I'm going to give of myself, my whole body, my whole being. I'm going to die. And, and Peter and the disciples are like, no, Jesus, this isn't going to happen. But Jesus says, yes, because my will has to cease and what the Father wants has to continue through. John 18, we spoke of during our all the things conversation. How Jesus stops Peter. Jesus brings healing to Malchus's ear. He wants to stop and say, it's enough, it's enough. We're not to be those who actively strike out. Paul builds on this in Galatians chapter 5, often referred to as the passage with the fruit of the Spirit. But verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, recognize how most of these, if not all of them, are about giving. They they don't have a whole lot of ceasing. It's about continuing and, and giving yourself into things. Sexual immorality, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And Paul wraps up with self-control. Self-control, the ability to stop oneself, the ability to, yes, carry oneself through, but a ceasing is implicit in that. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul again speaks as he'd been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he goes on to talk about putting to death those certain things, again, that he refers to in Galatians. In verse 12, the conversation changes. And yes, there, is some, there are some things, rather, that we have to put on. But even those things that we put on, he says, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These ingredients of ceasing, of stopping. One interesting ingredient of our parable today, the manure, is that God inserts himself, not as judge, not as king, not as owner of this field or of these uh, trees, But here in the story, he takes on the role of the servant, the lowlier one, the worker. And of course, this isn't surprising to us when we read the scriptures and watch Jesus and the totality of who he is as he's come and he consistently serves and serves and serves. And in John chapter 15, we see that he is the vine or the vine dresser, not necessarily the one who owns all of the fields. And of course, it resonates even more when we read Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. You get a sense that Paul's trying to drill down on something particular, the same mind. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I know that that doesn't fit into our cultural now. We have to be bigger. We have to be better. We have to be stronger. The church for too long has focused on this triumphant illustration of Christ. And make no mistake about it, God wins. (laughs) Love wins. Jesus is the name above every other name, but it's as he takes this mind, this form of a servant. Again, I feel like, to be perfectly honest, the church universal has kind of forgotten that. We've gotten off track of what it means to serve, to love others by serving. And certainly it's very un-American because we have to be the best. We have to have the best. And then Jesus rolls in with this story. This story of a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit. And the charge comes for it to be cut down. And Jesus rolls in and says, let it alone. Give it space. Do nothing to it. Read you a passage from Peterson again. This let it alone. 
This let it alone, it is a strange thing perhaps, but given a certain level of motivation and maturity, it is easier to do things than to not do things. We wanna be in on the action. We don't like being put on the sidelines. A yes is more congenial to our spirit than a no. So much of the time, it is not complacency that threatens, but it's opposite, impetuosity. We see something that is wrong, whether in the world or in the church, and we fly into action, righting the wrong, confronting sin and wickedness, battling the enemy, and then we go out vigorously recruiting, quote unquote, Christian soldiers. But here Jesus tells a story. And again, remember the, the, the impetus for it was saying, hey, who sinned here? Why did the building fall on those people? What did they do wrong? And Jesus tells a story about letting things alone. Now let's consider Jesus' choice of a central character. And the central character for me of this parable is not just a fig tree. The central character is what the vine dresser suggests should be applied. It's the manure. The manure is the central character of this story. So as we consider the characteristics of manure, first and foremost, we understand that manure is not a quick fix. Any of us who are gardening or know of people who have ever gardened, you don't just apply manure and boom, it gets better the next day. It takes time. It needs time. Manure, in fact, is not just not a quick fix. Uh, manure needs time and it needs passage. Day and night and day and night and day and night. And then and only then will we see the working Eugene Rosenstock Hessia, a historian and social philosopher with experience of living through not one, but two world wars, wrote this. The greatest temptation of our time is impatience. In its full original meaning, refusal to wait, undergo, suffer. We seem unwilling to pay the price of living with our fellows in creative and profound relationships. As an aside, I think this is what the difference that is so difficult for us to engage in terms of community groups. Because it does, this type of innovation places us closer with people. More intimate conversations, letting ourselves be known and getting to know others. It's easy to walk into a worship sanctuary where I'm sitting right now and, and worship God and be encouraged by a message or not, <laughs> but to kind of slide in the midst of 100, 200, 300 and then slide right out. There's no profound openness that we get to offer others or really give of ourselves in that dynamic. We can find, no question, God's presence, and yes, we can engage in interactions, but I would suggest it is so easy to walk into the midst of a large crowd and never let ourselves be known. The third characteristic of manure is that it's silent. It's quiet, it's still. Now I'm not talking about ignoring something that's dangerous, wrong, abjectly evil or, or threatening human life. I'm just suggesting that as Jesus says, hey, let me put some manure here. Maybe we need to put some silence into our interactions with others. Think about our political discourse right now where both sides, right is pointing at the left, left is pointing at the right, and all of them seem to say the same thing. If they have their way, it's all gonna blow up. 
Well, if they have their way, this American experiment is all but over. Well, if they are allowed to do this and if they're allowed to do that and it's back and it's forth and it's a tweet here and it's a tweet there and it's an executive order here and it's an executive order there and then it's a hands fold and it's not doing this and it's not doing that. Well, they're bad and no, they're bad. And if they have control, well, they did have control and it just kind of all devolves and nothing ever gets done. Except that type of verbiage, that type of attitude and environment engages not just on a political realm, but in our social realm. It colors how we look at our geographic neighbors. It it influences how we accept one another, who they voted for, how did they vote, and all of a sudden everything else doesn't matter except the fact that we're pointing fingers because we're in this just terribly unhealthy environment. Think about the silence, perhaps, that maybe should be invested in your marriage. Maybe you don't always need to knit and pick. Maybe you don't need to correct every little thing. Or as parents, and this one is tough for me. We've got three great kids, Asa, Jun, Zoe. I couldn't be prouder of who they are, the seasons of life that they're in. But I've realized in my wiser moments, that maybe, just maybe, I don't have to correct everything that they do wrong. Maybe, just maybe, those decisions that Jude makes at 12 that I immediately extrapolate and assume he's gonna make at 25 that would land him in a state penitentiary for 15 years, maybe, just maybe, he won't always make that decision. Maybe, just maybe, he'll grow out of it. Maybe, just maybe, he won't be at 25 what he is at 12. Can I get an amen from every parent who's listening? Maybe they just need some presence. Maybe they just need some parental uh, involvement, not just the wagging finger and the manipulative correction. Again, I'm not talking about being irresponsible. I'm talking about staying in our healthiest role. I mean, echoing Jesus' words, not my will, but yours be done, giving something space as he does in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 6. This whole Jesus way of not my will, but yours, trusting in the Father. Now, while we're here, let me also say this. Your silent presence, your endorsement of someone in friendship, or yes, even as a loving spouse or a caring parent, does not scream your approval of absolutely everything about them, who they are and what they do. We see this in the example of Jesus as he rolls with people who indeed are less than perfect, who don't always get it right, who yes, have sinned and fallen short and Jesus yet eats dinner with them. In fact, that's one of the conversations. It's one of the pointed fingers that he hears so often. Well, Jesus, why are you uh, hanging out with those people? Hey, why are you having dinner with those people? Jesus is there because he wants to love them. He wants to be in relationship with them. And notice he's not always confounded by correction and, and telling them the wrong and telling them what they need to do. He's just there. My dad always said, if you remain silent, you remain a philosopher. <laughs> I thought he made that up. Uh, it was actually Bothius, a late 5th and 6th, early 6th century uh, Latin philosopher. Saul Bellows says this, the more you keep your mouth shut, the more fertile you become. Peterson writes this, 
hanging from the cross, Jesus' first words were a prayer. Father, forgive them. Our translations obscure the identity of this word that Jesus prayed from the cross with Jesus' earlier word in the story of the manure and the fig tree. The farmer's order, chop it down, is echoed in the Holy Week. Crucify him. Jesus' prayer to his father, forgive them, is a verbatim repetition of the gardener's invention, let it alone. The Greek word is aphis. In some contexts, it means hands off, cool it, leave it alone. In other contexts, having to do with sin and guilt, it means forgive, remit. It is the word used in the prayer Jesus taught us, forgive us our sins. Here, the context of parable and prayer converge. The violence intended for the fig tree is deflected by the gardeners, let it alone. The violence visited on Jesus is countered by, Father, forgive them. For those of us who are up to our necks in manure, which is to say, up to our necks in forgiveness, it is perhaps important to note that the forgiveness Jesus prayed for us was not preceded by any confession or acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the crucifixion crowd or any of us since. Preemptive forgiveness. Jesus prays that we be forgiven before we have any idea that we even need it. Quote, for they know not what they do. End quote. No preconditions, amazing grace. Two practical things I want to offer each and every one of us today. First and foremost today, do you know you can receive God's let alone for your life? Do you know that Jesus' declaration on the cross, Father, forgive them. Don't chop it down. Don't end that. Jesus declares over your life and mine, let it alone. Let us receive God's forgiveness for all of our shortcomings, for all of our failures, for all of our sins, for all of our sinful habits. If you're gathering in a community group, this would be a wonderful opportunity for you if you would be so bold to maybe share some things, the appropriate, of course. Maybe confess, ask for some people to pray with you and, and be able to comfort you because God's declaration over your life, let it alone, only works when you really enter into it. Secondly, let us give to others what has been granted to us. Let us be a people who give freely the let it alone that God has given us. Let us treat others how God has treated us. This week, in terms of practices, consider the stopping and ceasing of Sabbath. Find some space to really lean into that nothingness, the ceasing. And also enter into forgiveness. Enter into the let it alone that God speaks over your life. Maybe, just maybe, find it within yourself. Maybe in that Sabbathing moment, you'll find some space and time and God will speak to you and you'll see some things that you need to forgive, you need to let go. Because the most beautiful point in my mind of let it alone is that we get to give that to other people. The practical, applicable, tangible, let it alone is that we would be able to forgive others. Let me leave you with this benediction. 
May we lean into God's let it alone as it speaks freedom and wholeness over our lives. May we furnish the world with God's let it alone, allowing for it to produce freedom and healing in others. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.